What's up, everybody? This is Peter Nesbitt from Team Pay, and you're listening to Awkward Conversations, Tales from the Finance Department. Finance professionals are often forced to be the bad guy, which can lead to some uncomfortable conversations with employees about business purchases. On this show, I sit down with finance leaders to discuss their most awkward conversations and what they've learned throughout their careers. Listeners can earn free CPE credit for listening to this podcast. Just download the Earmark CPE app from the App Store or visit earmarkcpe.com. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Naeem Ishaq. Naeem is the CFO of Checker, a company that powers people infrastructure for the future of work. With artificial intelligence and machine learning, Checker Solutions made background checks faster, easier, and more compliant. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Peter. It's good to see you. Yeah, likewise. It's been a bit. So our podcast is called Awkward Conversations because finance is often forced to ask employees awkward questions about company <laughs> spend. Right. You know, for example, why didn't you get this purchase approved in advance? <laughs> or why did you ta- um, put 20K on the corporate credit card? Yeah. You know, I would love to hear a story from you, at least maybe start with the expenses. Sure. Um, any of those sort of awkward conversations that came up to you in your um, career as a CFO? Yeah, um, too many. Um, but um, God, if I think of one, most awkward. Yeah, I, I've got one. So there was a, a situation a few years back where um, we had an executive who tried to submit an expense for what I'll only describe as inappropriate adult entertainment. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and I mean, it, it, it's weird to, to do that for clients, but ultimately even maybe stranger to think that they would get through the expense approval process. Um, sure enough, they did not. And, um, and ultimately that, that ex- executive was let go. Um, you know, for violation of, of company policies, but it certainly made for a, an extremely awkward conversation. Yeah. Wow. Did you have to let the board know about this? Uh, they were uh, one degree down from the, it wasn't mm. at a C level. So it's oh, that's that great. the board was not notified, but um, it was a VP level person. Yeah. Wow. That's, and that, that is definitely awkward. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's, um, we had a, uh, Jack McCulloch from the CFO Leadership Council on with a similar story in his um, his career as well. Um, yeah. seems, to, seems to be one of the most awkward ways uh, yeah. conversations around expenses. You think people would have figured that out, but apparently not. Yeah. Um, and I was uh, curious, like, I know if you also had a you know, long career in the you know, CFOs, like any other sort of awkward conversations? I, I love to kick this off with other sort of things with investors, the boards, you know, with bosses and you know, anything else that would you know, be, be interesting here. Yeah, I mean, many, many there too. You know, I can I can think of one situation. This is also a few years back, and I won't, won't mention the specific company, but the uh, uh, the CEO of that company, I would have well, the backstory. We were involved in a significant transaction at the time, and as part of that, we had furnished a, a lot of information um, as part of the diligence process. And there's one particular piece of information that that he he just did not want to disclose, but you know. It's, pretty clear to me that was required um, as part of our disclosure. And, and so he was providing a lot of pressure because he felt like if we were to make that disclosure, it might kill the transaction and, you know, felt like it was, it was a high stakes uh, effort and, you know, very, very material to where the company was at the time. And so he really wanted this and he ultimately felt like it wasn't quote unquote that big a deal. I think from my point of view, it was explicitly a requirement and, you know, this kind of thing that you don't want to, you know, be blurring lines on. And so we had an extremely long conversation, several hours mm-hmm. late into the evening on this topic the night before that diligence process was supposed to be brought down. And, uh, you know, ultimately I held my ground that 
that one that we were not going to do that uh and that two that mm-hmm. if he was going to do that he was going to do it without me so effectively mm. you know furnish my resignation over this issue wow yeah so it's so pretty pretty heavy stuff now you know thankfully in the end we agreed that we did need to furnish information and that we would deal with the consequences and we'd figure out and ultimately that is what we did mm-hmm. and sure enough we did figure it out and we got to a successful outcome but i can tell you that was one certainly very awkward and two very difficult um yeah. you know, when you're yeah you know, when you're in school and you learn about business ethics and these things it sounds fairly straightforward when you're reading about it but um you know it's quite another thing when you're in the moment and actually having to live that and you know and really hold up to to your professed values um, and integrity yeah i think that's a you know a great anecdote around just the you know, value of like lived integrity in the role as uh-huh. the head of finance the cfo absolutely yeah yeah so, so you've been cfo at checker for about two and a half years now yeah. and you know so we're, one of your main responsibilities is optimizing checkers financial performance for long-term sure. growth you know, how do you approach that and how do you think about, you know, optimizing for long-term growth in general? It, it's, I mean, first I'll say this is, you know, very difficult as well. I think for, for all finance leaders is to find that balance. Uh, and in the end, you're thinking about upside opportunity, downside mm-hmm. risk. You're thinking about resource allocation, um, you know, across the portfolio. And you're thinking about also, you know, communication across the executive team, manage relationships with the board directors, with major investors. So it's a very, very challenging puzzle. My, my, the thing I've always tried to remember is go kind of goes back to you and then follow the, the courage of your convictions and, and be sound in your, your business logic and not to get too cute about it. You know, so mm-hmm. if your economics are good and uh, sound and, you know, great, this is a good signal to invest. And if they're not, you know, resist the urge to convince yourself otherwise. Uh, and again, it might sound straightforward, but there's again, a lot of pressure here from many di- different sources. Sometimes that, that yeah, sort of ironically. Sometimes from investors, yeah. And I'll give mm-hmm. you an example. You know, over the last, certainly the last five, 10 years, but maybe even we've argued the last, you know, 20 years, there's been, um, you know, a rising risk on environment, mm-hmm. um, a lot of capital availability. And I think you know, leaders and, and investors are taking more and more risk and, you know, the zeal to drive growth at all cost. It's, it in many ways sort of flied in the face of the you know, sound business logic about how to build a, a durable, sustaining, growing company. Mm-hmm. And, and I think many executive teams have fallen victim to that and gotten kind of carried away with the sort of sentiments of investors in the moment. And, you know, WeWork is probably a very famous example of, of how, mm-hmm. I think that's what you've seen the, the movie or, or read, read the stories, but I think um, uh, one sort of led the charge on, you may argue irresponsible growth, two also felt, felt um, pressured and maybe even victim to you know, outside pressures to, to drive that kind of growth, even when, again, the business logic underneath that may not have been sound. And there's just hundreds, if not thousands of other examples of that. Uh, and so again, having the, 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 the courage of your convictions to resist that pressure and, and follow what you know to be right, uh, that matters. And, and then and things can change quickly. So suddenly yeah. we're in an extremely risk off mode. Like we look around us, right? You know, many companies are down 50, 60, 70, 80 plus percent. Yeah, uh, in a very short period of time, and investor sentiments have moved in the other direction, and to suddenly become hyper conservative isn't necessarily the right answer either, right? So again, finding that right balance and and being able to, to and not and not ignore the feedback or be uh, ignorant to it to incorporate it, but ultimately follow follow sound business judgment. I think is is really critical in this environment, or frankly, in in any environment. 
Yeah, that's, that's a, um, some great feedback there. And thinking about like what's long-term mean, I guess, in the context for mm-hmm. Checker. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we um, you know, one, we're, we're an eight-year-old company, so still very mm-hmm. young in our, our journey. Yeah. And we've been blessed to be uh, very successful, have grown, you know, from the beginning, have grown very fast. And in fact, one of the, the fastest growing companies ever in enterprise software. And we have very big ambitions too. So we've disrupted uh, what was previously largely a business service, uh, providing background checks, brought technology to that to you know, effectively make that both hyper-automated which, um, and inefficient, and that drives faster throughput, better accuracy, and ultimately a better outcome for the customer. Mm-hmm. And when you're successful and so successful in supporting your customer's needs, that you know, gives you the, the privilege to potentially do more. And mm-hmm. we do have big ambitions about ultimately where we're gonna go. So you know, starting with disruptive background check market, that's going well, that's been job one. But there are, um, one, it's, it's also a big global opportunity. Largely we're focusing just today. You know, we do have aspirations beyond that. Um, but then two, if you think about the broader HR uh, ecosystem, you know, if we think about in our, in our mind, certainly we have like a five-year plan, but you know, we think about investments um, in our product portfolio and the strategies that we're deploying, um, we think over a 10-year plus horizon. Uh, so that's, that's what I would say if you have a short answer to that you know, for us. Yeah, that's that's great. You're able to think that far ahead. I know so many companies are, you know, they struggle to plan even one quarter in advance. Yes, absolutely. And and I think, you know, finance can play a really important role this of not just the, the financial plan side, which is which is great. And certainly mm-hmm. we do an annual operating plan and quarterly outlooks and we do a mid quarter refresh to that and always having a sense of where we are. We also run the strategic planning process for the company, mm-hmm. which allows us to focus those efforts across the entire organization, step back, take in the big picture. And then use that to guide the plans that come after that. Mm. And yeah, you know, those things aren't aren't put in place uh, uh, easily. They take focus and effort um, and buy-in from you know the various leaders across the company. But when done well, mm-hmm. um, I think can be very powerful. Um, it can help finance kind of elevate from you know, more of a a back office function to you know part of the business that can help uh, help to ultimately drive growth at a strategic level. Yeah. And what's like the strategic strategic planning process look like at Checker these days? Yeah. So we do a, um, what we call a, a three YP or three year plan, um, each summer. And, uh, you know, we started that two years ago as a company. So mm-hmm. shortly after I joined and that, that process is not exactly a waterfall, but somewhat it typically starts with a product strategy development, which then feeds, um, a go to market strategy. Uh, mm-hmm. work stream, which then feeds sort of more of an operational uh, strategy work stream. And then ultimately there's like the the infrastructure on the side of it too that ultimately supports everything else. And then as we wrap that up, uh, it, well, it forces us to all communicate our aspirations and goals and also to distill down. Because in the end, there's just so many opportunities you have to, mm-hmm. you have to pick a direction. Yeah. And then if that ends, it leads directly into the annual uh, operating plan. So when we set targets going into that, that and uh, the AOP mm-hmm. um, that's informed by the strategic plan that we had just finished. And so those two, two things are very closely interlinked and, and then also ultimately feeds the annual goals that we set as a, as a leadership team as well for the company. Um, those get ratified, the AOP gets ratified in January is typical by the board. Yep. Um, and then each, each quarter we, we refresh that uh, as is typical. Um, mm-hmm. and we are today, so a private company, but we operate in many ways as you would in the, in the quarterly cycle. The yeah, that, that's, public company. that's a good insight. I guess bringing the th- 3YP to Checker, it sounds like, what are a couple of lessons learned for anyone else who wants to roll out like a, 
you know, a longer term strategy, strategic oh, yeah, planning process yeah. like this? Yeah, I've got so many scars. I, um, I, <laughs> my first experience in doing this was um, at Salesforce. So mm-hmm. I joined in 2008 and it was, uh, and that group has been at Intel, which was very, very, mm-hmm. very into long range planning because, you know, they would yeah. cost us five, $10 billion to build a fab. Uh, mm-hmm. So we had to think about, uh, and by the way, it would take three to five years to build a fab. So if you weren't thinking over that horizon, you just would never be able to align capacity with market demand. So we, we just yeah. had to do it by necessity. When it came to Salesforce, uh, in a way, we, we didn't have any such kind of formal structure. Of course, you know, Mark, our CEO, had a, a vision and, and a view about where we were going, but you know, the details matter. You have to kind of connect the dots. So I was the, the first to, to lead that effort uh, in my role, created a new team to go and drive that and, and learn the right ways and wrong way to go do it. So maybe start with mm-hmm. the, the wrong way. Um, <laughs> is um, I made that dramatically too detailed the first time mm-hmm. I tried to put that forward. Um, and I remember I built this... Um, sort of, you know, one model to rule them all that was so big and bloated in Excel that actually had a provision, a server sitting on my desk uh, to run it because um, it's that heavy. It would take several minutes just to boot up uh, in the calculations. And it could tell you almost anything, but it was like, it was a ridiculously overbuilt um, mm-hmm. model. And, you know, actually, ironically, the, the kind of business process to built behind that, I think, was actually much more at the right level, but kind of the hour crunching all the numbers was I think dramatically overbuilt, and I think with humility, you have to recognize, you know, we don't we don't have a crystal ball. No one has a crystal ball, uh, and in fact, I think getting too far into the weeds, the paradox of, of, of planning and modeling is often you get model drift, and you find yourself even further from where yeah. you're going to be. So, kind of this, the the art is distilling that down to the essentials um, to drive the strategic discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, having a point of view that is directional. And then helping people just move quickly behind that, uh, and knowing you're going to have to iterate, and 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 it's never going to be perfect. Um, so that was probably the biggest lesson from doing that. And then you know, in subsequent companies from uh, Salesforce to Square to Box to Circle to now Checker, you know, mm-hmm. we've refined that approach um, at those companies I've come to, and uh, you know, we're always refining. Uh, but that would say that's probably the biggest mistake I, I made um, early on. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is such a great uh, leadership experience across so many great um, brand names there. Mm-hmm. No, I, I'm curious, Mike, you know, I'd love to d- dive in a little bit more to Square. So yeah. you helped that company through a successful IPO. Yeah. Um, you know, I know the IPO markets are pretty closed down, but I'd still be curious just kind of what that process was like back then. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the, the backstory, I came to Square along with the, my manager from, from Salesforce, uh, mm-hmm. Sarah, uh, came over to be CFO. Um, she was previously the SVP of, of uh, finance and strategy at Square. And so we came, yeah, she hired me about six weeks after she joined. And and pretty early on, I remember very, very early on, that was 2012, she had set up a meeting with, with myself and, and James Kelly, who was our, our controller, and just kind of on a whiteboard. So, all right, what, is, what would it look like for us to be a public company? Because we always knew mm-hmm. that was ultimately the aspiration was to be independent and public. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we, you know, literally we just kind of brainstormed and said, okay, this, these are the kinds of things it would look like. We, we talked about things like, you know, kind of what kind of durable growth rate we could rely upon, uh, whether or not we needed to achieve profitability. And in that case, we agreed, you know, path was necessary, not necessarily profitability. We talked about diversification of our revenues, product line, just sort of etched some things out into some more operational things as well. Things like, you know, timeliness of close and so on. And, and then we did it. We, did, we actually kind of put it in a, in a drawer we weren't like exactly coming back to it you know, every month or every quarter, but we knew you know, and sort of established in our minds what that looked like. Um, and then it was around 
in late 2014, we were finishing the, the annual operating plan for the company at that point and uh, started asking questions like, I think we are, I think we've more or less achieved or very close to achieving a lot of what we said we needed to go do. And that spurred into the you know, discussion with, with Jack, our CEO and the board and ultimately decided, yeah, you know, we are ready now. And then the whole process, you know, actually kicks off in earnest and you have to, you know, we did a big off for, for investment banks that we want to work with. And then we chose uh, Goldman Sachs as a lead left and also had Morgan Stanley played a huge role and, and JP Morgan as well. So you know, great, great folks there. Mm -hmm. um, it was interesting seeing, uh, you know, Sarah who had come from uh, Goldman Sachs kind of navigate that. I learned a lot from that experience and, you know, also just kind of keeping a lot of big personalities working together. Uh, yeah. The big challenge in the IPO process uh, with the banks, and you know, there's a lot of money at stake, but also reputations and egos, and so that was a very interesting uh, experience, you know. And then ultimately the process of, of drafting the S one, you know, we had actually gone into it before we 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 started formally started the process. We had already come to the table with the draft of our of our S one. Hmm, um, that's great. Yeah, which not every company does, but having lived that, I think that was that was really good because it gave us a chance to. You know, really frame, you know, for the, for our debut, kind of who we were as a company and it's a very purpose driven and, um, uh, company as well. Uh, the other interesting thing too, is we had to sort of find what was the kind of natural point of engagement with, with, with Jack, our, our CEO. And he was, he was actually quite involved in the process too. And, you know, Jack is very detail oriented and cares a lot about, you know, again, sort of how we represent ourselves. And so he was, uh, actually that was surprised how, how quite involved mm -hmm. he was and and some of that drafting of the language that we used and I wanted to be consistent with how we, we spoke about things internally as well. Um, so that was, that was definitely very interesting. And then well, a couple other points I think were, were fascinating is we, you know, force you to submit your, your drafts to the SEC. We actually had to do one turn before we got approval, wow. which was, was really great. Uh, I'm very proud of the, the, you know, various folks ac across the business who were able to get there, but. There was another factor that I think um, often gets missed in companies, but was very important to to Jack, as transparency was such an important value for a company. Was mm -hmm. how do you how do you manage the risk of being a public company and information disclosure and things like insider trading without just like locking everything down mm -hmm. um, and changing who you are as a business? And so, and it had asked me to to come up with a plan to go do that. And, and so we took some approaches that were more traditional, but many approaches that were non-traditional and, you know, there's, it's not, there was no, it wasn't, it should be clear. There wasn't, there was some risk uh, associated with that, but it was a trade-off. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we, we struck that trade-off and, and. What were some of course, those non-traditional approaches? Uh, well, well, the, probably the most notable example is many companies will actually put in access controls and lock down access to information about like financial performance. Mm -hmm. Kind of across the board. So it's you know, sort of a do a walled garden that has to get created. Mm -hmm. and you have to be given the key to get into the walled garden. We took a different approach, which was we set clear expectations for the company around what information was considered material not public, and what the ramifications for doing things around, you know, material non public information was for them personally and for the company. Um, and what the company ramifications were, everyone was a shareholder. Um, you know, information uh, leaked out of the company and, and how that could hurt, you know, their stock price, of course, and yeah. shareholders um, and damage our long-term uh, vision. But we didn't just shut everything down. We said, hey, look, if you if you need to know, you can access the information. Again, there's certain very, at the highest level, things that, that were locked down, but actually we're more liberal, I think, most companies were. Oh, that's awesome. 
And that was not, not entirely comfortable. That was that was a risk, but it, yeah, at least today it has paid off. Uh, I don't yeah. know if they've done it. Left a few years ago, we we never had um, any any leaks and never had any issues with insider trading. And but it, it's a it's an investment in 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 faith uh, mm-hmm. for those folks. And there are trade offs too. For example, that meant a, a wider blanket of folks who were restricted from trading in certain windows. Mm-hmm. And so again, we I think people understood yeah. that, and we had to to make that in an informed way. Yeah. Uh, that's a really great anecdote there. I'm just curious from a finance perspective, you know, mm-hmm. what were some of the, cha- it sounds like you had all your, you know, ducks in a row, but were there any other sort of challenges that you faced along the way for the IPO process? Yes, many, many challenges. Um, I'll, I'll give you two if that's okay. If we yeah, have time for perfect. It. One's yeah. more external, kind of what was happening in the mm-hmm. capital markets at the time, and one was a little bit more internal. The sort of in- internal one, a little bit more of the weeds was, you know, Square is a, um, uh, a merchant acquirer and processing mm-hmm. tens of billions of dollars of volume for for its customers. You know the accounting and the 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 tracking of all the information and how it gets reconciled is very 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 complex. And without getting too too much into specifics, I'll just say there are certain areas that were not the most well understood, even amongst like our business operators, nor against the folks yeah and mm-hmm. the the finance team. And we we you know through the kind of intensive diligence we did and, and preparation while well, we're actually in the process. We came across some some areas that were, uh, again, I would say not as well understood as they needed to be, mm-hmm. and we had to do a big, big, massive sprint to reconcile all those things. And a little bit lucky, there's some offsetting yeah. variances that kind of washed out, and everything was okay. But it <laughs> didn't have to necessarily work out that way, mm-hmm. um, which would have been a really big problem. But yeah, thankfully yeah. in the end, we have the foresight to at least you know, go through that extremely intensive diligence process uh, you know, for our own numbers and. Um, it's not even the the core financials like those are, you know it's a little bit more understood. It's, it's more the operational stuff mm. underneath the surface in how the information fundamentally fundamentally flows, and especially if you have very complex data flows across yeah. a wide network of literally millions of customers and you know dozens of of major um, data, data sources. Um, that's it's, again very non trivial, um, yeah. and it hits the intersection between finance operations engineering. And it's, you know, those intersection points, often things, things fall through the cracks. So very good lesson. And, you know, the sooner you can get that mm-hmm. understood and get your arms around it, the better. Yeah. Um, and I think in that case, we were maybe a little late to it, but, but certainly early enough that we were able to avoid any kind of real problem. Um, the second one I'll talk about is a little bit more of the, the broader kind of capital market situation. So we had started our IPO process, uh, selected underwriters, all that in early 2015. And then the markets went through this little bit of a freeze. And I, I'm trying to remember, I think it might've been, there was some uncertainty about the European credit markets that mm-hmm. caused a pretty big correction at the time. So strong that um, actually that was around the time when LinkedIn's yeah, stock price crashed and Microsoft swooped in and acquired LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was during that window. Now, oh wow! and so, you know, so we were a little bit uncertain on what, what would the markets bear in terms of our IPO price. And the markets eroded significantly while we're going through that. So we had an, a, it was certainly a huge debate internally about whether or not we should actually go forward with the IPO, mm-hmm. kind of given what was happening in the capital markets at the time, and um, ultimately decided to push through. And it was painful. So we had done our last private round. Um, I wanted, if I've been researching, around $16 a share. And we priced our IPO at $9 a share. Oh. So it was a down line IPO wow. and not a lot of fun to go do that. It's extremely, uh, demotivating for employees mm-hmm. yeah. um, and disillusioning. 
it, it created a lot of consternation um, for folks who, you know, their hopes and dreams. It doesn't mean folks are wiped out, but, you know, it was hard to imagine yeah. that you'd IPO lower than the last round. It's, it's not unheard of, but not common. And and that's where the markets were at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we did push through, and there's some kind of, it was just external factors. We had some issues as well internally um, in our leadership team and, you know, some some changes that were happening. I'll say that mm-hmm. if anyone's curious, you can look up all those news at the <laughs> yeah. moment. Uh, yeah. And so that, that was causing some investor concern, but we decided, you know what, in the end, it's going to just take consistent performance and outperformance to build trust with the, with the market. And in the end, mm-hmm. this is just a moment in time. The amount of dilution was relatively low and it wasn't a huge float that was going out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should push through and then just work to build up that confidence. We had to take a number of steps to reassure our employees to take a long-term view and uh, not a short-term view. Yeah. And, and so we did. I had a lot of conversations one-on-one and small group settings and big group settings as did, you know, Sarah, our CFO yep. and many other executives of the company. Um, and you know, all's well that ends well. So we priced our IPO at nine, uh, it swung up to 13, it dropped back to eight yep. and, then, um, yeah, rose up to, I don't even know what the peak was, but over $200 a share. Mm-hmm. Uh, today's trading you know, closer to $80 a share, uh, with the recent, you know, huge market correction, that's still, you know, uh, close to 10 times what the initial IPO price was, yeah. which was, you know, it was only in 2015. So, you know, about seven years, less than seven years ago. So ultimately it was a great outcome for, for everyone. Uh, but was it easy, you know? So I think definitely some, some good lessons and, and, you know, different schools of thoughts here, mm-hmm. how you time the market and don't time the market. Um, to be clear that that correction wasn't anything like what this we one, yeah. are living through right now. Nowhere, you know, this is the mm-hmm. order of magnitude, I think more more difficult of a market, um, but it wasn't exactly a, 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 you know, a healthy market. In fact, the IPOs are for us now. We're the ones to, to break the ice. Uh, it took, again, I think a lot of courage for us to yeah. do so. And, um, and I think we ran a, a great process with, with, with great partners, uh, both on like, the investment banks and outside council. We have an amazing team internally. Um, and at the end, I think Square has, the, I'm very proud of what that, well, that team has done and ultimately the amount of value they've created for their customers and that's yeah. reflected and in the stock price today. Incredible business case, incredible journey. Um, yeah. And I'm sure so many other CFOs and heads of finance are having these conversations right now, especially for, you know, the dozens of companies that went public in the last, you know, 18 months and never been seen their, you know, their current, you know, share price substantially lower than, you know, yeah. their IPO price. That's right. You know, it's going to be interesting. Uh, as you said, uh, Peter, the markets are frozen out now. There are eventually someone's going to break the ice mm-hmm. and, it might be similar. I, I yeah. guess it, it may very well be similar. And yeah, that's gonna be tough. But you know, this is this is a, a, a there is another side to that. And there is light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. But it's never easy. And that's something actually, you know, maybe I step back for a minute. You know, as you said, you know, I've been very fortunate to have some amazing uh, companies that I've had a chance to work with. And you know, in hindsight always seems like no brainer. It's like well, of course Salesforce is an amazing company, of course Square is an amazing company, of course Circle is an amazing company, and Trek is an amazing company. But, you know, when you're one before you join at an earlier stage, like there's a, in every one of those companies that are joined, there'd be a lot more doubters than believers. Mm-hmm. And, um, almost when I left Intel to join Salesforce, almost everyone I spoke with, I thought it was a bad idea. When I left Salesforce to join Square, almost everyone thought it was a bad idea. And not literally every company I've ever joined. And when you're in the moment, it's always really, really difficult. It's never easy. And that's, that's, that's yeah. just how it is, right? Business is hard. Um, and, uh, again, if you're an armchair quarterback, you can just, you know, 
obviously you can imagine you can call the shots, but when you're in the moment, um, and then you're, 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 you're actually building that outcome. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're just like a, a passenger along for the ride. Like you're, you're doing the work yeah. to get to that outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I think especially now where things are hard and especially hard, you know, I encourage everyone who, who might be listening to this call is yeah. to know that, you know, again, there's this too shall pass and there is an other side to that, um, to stay focused and, and kind of, again, you know, not overcomplicate things mm-hmm. and to just keep your cool, right? If you yeah. lose that, then, then all really as long as yeah. So if I recall, I mean, actually, I think about the time I met you, you'd actually just left um, and moved on to box. I think your first CFO title, is that right? That was right. Yeah. yeah. And CFO. so I'd love to, you know, I'm sure lots of folks here would love to be CFO someday and love to be CFO, of, whether a private public company or public company, but like, yeah. I'd love to hear about some of your thought process, the transition, how are you evaluating opportunities? How do you even create opportunities to become CFO somewhere? Like, I yeah. think, you know, for anyone on this, it would be um, great career advice. Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, this is going to probably be a relatively long answer. So please, <laughs> come, long, but, yeah. Um, I think that the first, again, kind of back to basics, like if you want to move fast in your career and, and do great things, like you have to put in the effort. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no substitute for hard work and you can be the smartest person in the world, but if you're not willing to put in the effort, you're just not going to be able to achieve great things. Uh, certainly not in a sustainable way. You might get lucky in some cases and sure, like people play the lottery and, and someone wins. Um, but if you want to repeat that success over and over, you have to be willing to put in the effort. You have to be willing to, to be very self-aware, understand where you can improve and not to do so in like in a way that demotivates you, but mm-hmm. rather again, leads to growth and development mm-hmm. is, is self-awareness. Um, and then push yourself to get better. You know, it's almost like working out as a professional. Every day you go to work, it's like hitting the gym, you know, and the muscles get sore and mm-hmm. you know, you get, you get punched in the nose occasionally and, and you have to be able to get up from that and, and keep pushing forward. You know, for my path, you know, I started actually as an entrepreneur, not as a finance professional. And my first experience as a that's through that was a, a failed business. My, my startup didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And so I had to pick myself off of the, the mat and, and go get it again. And I joined actually my, the, then the first job I took was actually wasn't with Tintel, it was with Chevron. Mm-hmm. Um, I was only there for about four months. I, I did not, um, I mean, great company, but it wasn't the right fit in the roles and, um, and I didn't, didn't enjoy the work and. I, I think I really wanted to work in technology, but this is coming mm-hmm. off the dot-com bubble. There just weren't any jobs available. So I was really fortunate that the you know, Intel who had recruited me was an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I turned down the offer. They called me back and said, are you sure you would consider? And I was like, yes, I will. So we consider, <laughs> um, and I joined yeah. Intel and again, I learned a ton there. And, you know, I came up through the FPNA side of the finance organization. The thing I loved about FPNA is you have an opportunity to work really deeply with every part of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, through rotation and whether you're supporting operations and for a couple of years and I supported or uh, go to market teams for a couple of years, I supported product management for a couple of years. You, you get, you, you really understand the mm-hmm. mechanics of how companies run and, and build up a general skill set, which, you know, increasingly boards and CEOs, they want CFOs who are well-rounded. Um, and who are more than, um, you know, just kind of closing the books. You can have a strategic point of view. We can actually have a point of view on, you know, on how we should scale or your sales organization, um, how we should you know, think about the different parts of the R and D org and how you think about strategic things like M and A and so on. Um, and so it was a great, uh, experience uh, for me to do that. Now, when you finally cross over and you have the opportunity to take a CFO gig, Wherever you come from, we come from the kind side of the house or uh, financial mm-hmm. planning side of the house or 
audit or whatever it happens to be, inevitably you're going to be dealing with things that you have, you're not an expert in. And I think one of the hardest career leaps to make is when you go from managing a function that you sort of are an expert in and grew up in mm-hmm. to now managing or leading functions that that is not the case in. How can you still be additive to those other functions? So I, I'm not an accountant. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, if you know you get exposure to that through your career, but you know I'm I'm not a CPA. I'm never going to know it as well as the, uh, the experts on a team. I still have to be additive to those teams. I still have to be able to assess talent uh, and drive performance in those organizations and help them to really fulfill their careers. Um, even though I, I may not be an expert in that, or even further afield, I, I lead things like our corporate engineering teams, which, you know, run business systems and IT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, I'm, I'm not an IT yeah. expert, but, you know, I have to be able to be added to that. I've, I've run sales teams in the past. I've led product teams in the past. Um, legal, compliance, uh, mm-hmm. HR, all these things that they didn't grow up in. And so, you know, and when you move into that C-suite, again, we're sure you're going to be, uh, you know, learning to, you know, on the fly, things that you're, you're not an expert in. Mm-hmm. And... I think the best thing you can do as you prepare for that is, you know, on that journey, pay attention to the things, not just sort of in your wheelhouse, mm-hmm. but kind of what's happening around you. And again, keep a beginner's mindset. Uh, so you're eager to learn and receptive to that. And then two, you know, have some humility as you are now doing the org to not feel like you have to have a pretense of, well, and I know everything, and, which, you know, comes from insecurity. Mm-hmm. Avoid that, you know, be, be okay with being vulnerable and recognizing that you don't know these things and, and recognizing that the leaders in those organizations, they do know it better than you. They have to know it better than you. And then open the door uh, in that way, which I think if you take the right attitude, then you will, again, you'll become more of an expert in those things over time. Yeah. Uh, and if you can do that, I think that's great. Um, I would say one one last thing kind of on this transition is I would say probably the, the most surprising thing for me was not so much those parts of it. I very much expected that. Mm-hmm. It was the extent to which when you're in the C-suite, you're truly operating, everyone in the C-suite truly is operating the company as a whole. You know, you have a functional area of focus, but your your purview, you're there, you're just like part of this intact team with the CEO, the chief revenue officer, the you know, head of engineer, mm-hmm. all these, these you know, small group of people, and you all are providing input and, and guidance to each other and engaging to operate the whole of the business. And that can be intimidating, but um, I also found it incredibly liberating and fun. Mm-hmm. It was probably the, the most fun part of the job is like, okay, cool. You're like, you're, it's really not, it's, it's all of it. Uh, yeah. Can you give me an example that of that? Amazing. Yeah, 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 totally. I, th- I think, um, you know, for example, when uh, we'll talk about, you know, growth, growth is a great example of this, you know, having the, the different points of, of view around, if you're moving into a new market, for example, building up a sales team, you have to decide on who those leaders are. So typically, you know, high-level senior roles, like you're part of the interview process and mm-hmm. it's selecting the talent coming in, but also selecting, you know, the market segments you're gonna go after, um, the amount of investments that you're putting in. How do you think about, you know, the cultural implications um, of change? So if you're mm-hmm. a team that typically was a self-service model and now you're bringing a Salesforce, like that has a, a bunch of different cultural implications. Um, as an example, if you think about international expansion, again, there's, there's cultural implications that come with that. Yeah. Um, and those things cut across the functional lines entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it, it's, you know, everyone who has to sit at the table has a really strong uh, point of view. And, and I would say ultimately, you know, I've, and this is sort of a, a hack I've always had in my career is, um, 
you know, trying to hold myself to a standard uh, of the collective success of the group or the company, um, even though, you know, maybe on paper I'm responsible for uh, a more narrow sliver of that. Mm-hmm. I think it forces you to think at that level. And, and in my mind, that only leads to good things. And so, yeah, those are some of the, the initial uh, things that, that come to, to, to mind about that, that transition. And yeah. this is now actually checkers in my third CFO role. Yep. Um, each of those companies, Box and Circle and Checker, have been in very different, very different sectors, yeah. uh, different stages of development, uh, different kind of market dynamics, mm-hmm. but they've all been fun. And I've learned yeah. a lot in maybe one of those. Yeah. I'll have one question on, uh, on, on Circle real quick here before we move on yeah. to a couple other comic movie. Sure. CFO tips and tricks. You know, I, I think you, if I call you joined Checker, sort of at the height of the ICO boom. You know, like, but it was pretty much an anti, yeah, sorry, Sir Circle rather. Yeah, you know, yeah, really yeah. kind of, but an anti ICO in many ways. You know, for anyone, yeah. you know, I think, you know, crypto and Web3 has been a big topic. Um, mm-hmm. Not, and I think it's been way out of the niche. And I've even at um, other sort of CFO events, I've been hearing this. People want to know how, as an operator, I can get involved in this. You know, how did you think about that back then? You know, that was, you know, years ago, the ecosystem was substantially smaller. How do you evaluate opportunities? How do you separate, you know, signal from noise? Uh, super easy. No, it was extremely, extremely difficult. Like the fog of war was and remains very, very thick there. And you have like, you know, normally in any role you have, uh, you know, business growth kinds of questions. Um, You have, again, growth to scaling Mm -hmm. dynamics, all those kinds of things you face. Crypto adds on top of that, like just fundamental uncertainties around like regulatory Mm -hmm. implications. You know, there's a lot of things that are just, it's just totally not clear what's legal, what's not legal, what's legal where, um, becomes a big question. Of course, there's you know, always concerns throughout things like AML, mm-hmm. uh, compliance from BSA perspective. And again, that's also different from market to market. And we ran as a big global business. I had been first exposed to, to crypto or Bitcoin back in way early, like 2012, 2011 timeframe, mm-hmm. um, just through personal interest and exposure. You know, someone who's worked in technology his whole life and somebody who's I am an armchair economist and it's like the perfect intersection between those mm-hmm. two things. And it's, it's, well, especially it's a stable coin, thing. like, yeah, that's, that's a perfect place for an armchair economist. Yeah, no, no, totally. And so, um, ironically, I had even way back then, mm-hmm. you, know, was, I, you know, I had a friend of mine who's an engineer who exposed me to Bitcoin. I was like so fascinated by it. And this is coming off the global financial crisis. But I, I think I was a little bit ahead of myself. And I said, well, you know, ultimately it's going to move to what we now call central bank digital currencies. There wasn't a name for it at the time. So unfortunately I didn't just buy Bitcoin. I should have just bought all the Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I'd be on an island somewhere. Um, but, but, but all kidding aside, it was a very fascinating thing. And when, uh, you know, Jeremy and Sean, who are the co-founders at, at Circle, mm-hmm. uh, reached out and I, I connected with them in, in 2017, it was clear that the market was, you know, very high. And yes, there's all sorts of interesting activity happening with ICOs and capital formation. And there was, I mean, certainly when, whenever any market gets that hot, it invites, and there's that much money being made, it invites fraud and bad actors. It happens literally. I mean, we're living through a lot of that right now. Mm-hmm. SPACs are probably in many ways, I think, a form of that. Um, I say every SPAC has been that, but some certainly have been. Yeah. Um, and there's things happening, of course, in the crypto markets as well, but I mean, kind of all around us. You had to see past that and sort of see through the noise. And at the time, circles running a big trading desk, Circle Trade. We had just acquired Poloniex, which was a big crypto exchange. Actually, was all the altcoins. It was like an mm-hmm. innovator in the altcoin market and uh, and had a, a consumer app called Circle Invest, a big portfolio. 
and we were, you know, what what really got me the most interested when when speaking to Jeremy Sean was they had the early inclinations and idea behind what ultimately became USDC or US dollar coin, mm-hmm. which was a, a fully reserved stable coin. And alongside, I think, a really interesting independent governance model through a separate organization called Center, mm-hmm. which governs how the, that works. I was like, oh, that just made sense. And so, you know, I was, I was very excited about that. We, and then we had to actually build it and communicate that and articulate. And we spent many, many countless hours going doing that while also seeing, unfortunately, you know, in 2018, the market, crypto market crashed extremely hard. Went from 17 Bitcoin from 17,000 to, I don't even know what the bottom point was, but yeah, I want to say in the range of about 3,000, yeah. um, maybe even lower than that. It was, it was tough. I remember very vividly, um, uh, Arthur Hayes, who, um, is a major player in the crypto market tweeting when uh, Ethereum or ETH, um, pardon me, Ether dropped below $100 a token. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that was actually the bottom. He called the bottom. He's like, ETH $100. And, you know, yeah. true folks are not crypto folks. It's traded around $2,000 token today. Mm-hmm. Um, and and ultimately, we had to make some extremely, extremely hard decisions um, to survive that, including effectively jettisoning most of our assets. So we sold the trade desk. Um, we sold the exchange. Yeah. We sold the consumer app and we put all of it. We just not double down. We, you know, we tripled down or whatever on um, mm-hmm. metaphor one use on US dollar coins. Say, look, this is going to be the future. And, you know, we have all the, the technology around that uh, to provide connectivity to partners and, and internally as well. So we're going to productize those services mm-hmm. and those, those APIs. Um, and we're going to really work to scale USDC and, and it works. Uh, you know, USDC today is, you know, trades of the uh, amount of dollars in circulations over $50 billion. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorite mementos I still have are, it was really cool. Our engineering team, when they minted the first test tokens, they, as a memorial thing, they printed the first uh, handful of tokens onto a Harvard wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have USDC three. Um, wow. It's kind of cool to have like, have the, you know, yeah. what honor, you know, the third of those, the first two went to our two co-founders and now there's 50 billion of those. And yeah. I think ultimately, you know, we always thought it'd be like, we would say it would sound like crazy, but like, there'd be billions and trillions of these. And Jeremy still says that and yeah. he's, I think he's right. And, you know, it's a good start on the way. And the other interesting thing too, is it's also become not just, I think, very interesting in the great business, but you know, mm-hmm. um, hopefully it'll consummate the circles. Latest is, um, you know, plan to go go public for us back at yep. the last mark was around $9 billion valuation, yep. hopefully later this year. Um, but also just how top of mind, you know, stable coins are mm-hmm. um, in the power quarters, the central bankers. Yeah, um, especially after Terra's collapse and yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. And then technologists too. And Terra, which was a very extremely different class mm-hmm. of stable coin. <laughs> I will, and I'm biased clearly. Um, <laughs> Air quotes uh, from on the line. <laughs> I don't want to say anything bad about anyone. I just will tell you that we designed fundamentally for USDC to be fully reserved. That was always the de- design yeah. with effectively zero risk on redemption. And and that is what's built in, in the end. And also with an incredible amount of transparency. From the beginning, we you know, we got attestations from Van Thornton mm-hmm. uh, you know, at launch. We always said, here's how much we have in circulation. Here's what came out. Here's, here's what it is. And again, you know, GT would put their stamp on it, I would sign that my signature on those attestations. Yeah. You can go find them. They have my name on it. Um, <laughs> my, my reputation's on the line. Mm-hmm. And I know because we we designed it to be always uh, stable. Mm-hmm. And again, for anyone to get redemptions, they could get it when they yeah. want. 
And the beauty is once you digitize that dollar, it's the whole idea, you move on to open um, infrastructure, right? These, these blockchains, they can move around the world instantaneously 24 seven, 365, um, which is really amazing versus the last time you try to send a wire, uh, it's not 24 seven, mm -hmm. it's not instantaneous, uh, it's very expensive. Um, and there's an enormous amount of friction that goes into that. And so that's, you know, it's still very, very early days, but it's really enabling a whole new class of, of um, you know, innovation and finance and DeFi. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and again, I really do believe that's just the, uh, we've only just begun. And yeah, so it's no. exciting, you know, very still very close friends with, uh, you know, Jeremy and Sean. And so, so proud of what they're continuing to do. And that whole team, awesome, awesome yeah. group of people over there circle. Yeah. Wow. You know, what an experience. Um, you know, I wanted to shift gears a little bit, maybe sort of wrap up here. You know, we talked a little about um, what you've been doing with Checker. What else is coming up with you? Um, sort of your vision there or your vision as a vision of what you want to do as a CFO? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, Peter, I think the first thing I say is I don't, I don't think of myself as like my identity is a CFO. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'm just a dude who's, you know, trying to do good things um, in the world and, you know, um, be interested and learn and, 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 you know, and have confidence that that's going to result yeah. in, in good things for my family and be rewarding in every way. And I'm a, I think the CFO role is an amazing role. Like, how could you not love it? It gives mm -hmm. like total visibility to everything, the big picture. Mm -hmm. um, it's high impact, it's high leverage. It's, I'm a quantitative numbers guy that deals with numbers. I love that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but kind of back to being, I, mean, I didn't start out as a, even if I was an entrepreneur. Um, yeah. And that's kind of, I think of myself more as a business person yeah. um, who happens to be a CSO mm -hmm. um, or, or carry that title. And that's great. I love that. And it's, it's very inspiring. I don't know that, um, but I've never sort of thought of that as like yeah. an endpoint uh, or even really like my identity um, mm -hmm. as a professional, certainly not as a, as a person. Um, yeah. And, uh, but, but been incredibly blessed to have the opportunities to serve in that capacity and, and, and checker what's amazing about checker and my, my, and my, and my, my role, uh, certainly I lead all the financial yeah. functions, but I also, uh, lead a number of non-financial functions and mention things like corporate engineering. I also lead our efforts with, um, checker.org, which is our philanthropic arm of the company. It's a huge honor. And, and that was one of the things that, um, ultimately maybe, maybe the most important thing I attracted me to checker is not only is an amazing business, it's been one of the mm -hmm. fastest growing companies, you know, again, ever in, yeah. in, in software history, but also that we're impacting in a positive way, millions and millions of people every year, uh, because the background check process is, you know, at a very basic level is an important part of providing trust and safety for uh, customers and their employees and their customers, uh, um, and their customers, pardon me. Of course, that's why you run background checks. So as a basic example, if you're running a daycare center, you will want to know if the people working there who are dealing with children have any kind of, you know, violent offense or sexual offense like this, it's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's logical that you'd want to go do that. Um, and I think it serves a good function in society. It can also though be an impediment to people having access to, to work. And if you don't have access to work, it, it really keeps you in a negative cycle. And so we've designed uh, software and tools to help uh, our customers to implement uh, you know, more nuanced view and evaluating candidates um, that they that they see. And by taking that more nuanced view, they can expand the pool of candidates, which helps them ultimately achieve their goals faster and more effectively, but also gives you know, those folks an opportunity to have access to work 
Um, and so, you know, the, the phrase often used is, is uh, fair chance hiring. We are ourselves a fair chance employer and we uh, in the, you know, encourage our customers to do mm -hmm. so. We provide them tools to help them to become uh, fair chance employers. And again, that's, that's a, a big part of what, what motivates us uh, to get up every day. Um, and it was a big part of why I joined the company. And so that's been a lot of fun, you know, over the years. Well, thanks so much. Um, you know, this has been definitely some unique insights for our listeners. And thanks so much for being an excellent guest. Um, Good. You know, so is there anywhere for people to connect with you? Is that like Twitter or LinkedIn? Where's the best people place for people to yeah. get in touch? Yeah, uh, yeah. LinkedIn is, is probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. If we're, we're not already directly connected, you can follow mm -hmm. me on Twitter, but it's mostly yep. going to be, uh, you know, repost about the Rams winning the Super Bowl. So <laughs> if you want that, also follow me on Twitter. I'm at NFUNK, but uh, for professional stuff, LinkedIn is usually the best way. Great. And cool. also, um, please subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Uh, and thanks, everyone. Listen to the next one. Thank you, Peter. It's great to talk to you, Matt. You too.